you don't have a Bible, there's some at the end of each row on the floor, and uh, today's passage is in page 976 in those Bibles. Again, that's Ephesians 1. We're going to be reading verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things together, all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for sending your spirit to inspire Paul to write this long, somewhat dramatically incorrect sentence of praise to you. God, it is gratitude and, and wonder and amazement at what you have done for us in Christ caused him to write this long, confusing sentence just out of a desire to worship you for what you've done in Christ. God, we pray that this morning the fact that we are redeemed in Christ wouldn't be some topic that we already know everything about. It wouldn't be something that's so common that we just assume that we know what it means. But God, that it's something that we would see in your word that matters for us and it is of great significance. Both because of what Christ has done for us in the past and for what he's continuing to do for us today. God, we pray that your Spirit would show us what it means for us today that we are redeemed in Christ through His blood. We thank you for Him. And in His name we pray. Amen. So for the past few weeks, we have been looking together at the book of Ephesians. 
and focusing specifically on the identity that we share together in Christ. What it means for us to be Christians and how that changes us internally. And so, two weeks ago, we talked about what it means that we've been chosen by God. Last week, Dave talked to you about what it means that we are adopted by Him. And today, what we're going to talk about is what it means that we are redeemed by Him. And as I kind of mentioned in my prayer, I think that this idea of, of redemption, of the fact that we are redeemed in Christ, is something that we almost even dismiss. People say we are redeemed in Christ. And it's just kind of a, a throwaway phrase that we use all the time without really thinking about what it means that we are redeemed in Him. And because of that, because it's, it's so common, I think that a lot of times we use this phrase, we talk about redemption, we talk about the fact that Christ is our Redeemer without really ever thinking about or learning about what it means that He has redeemed us. And so today we're going to kind of try to look at this passage as a, a group of idiots who don't know anything about redemption. And we're going to try to learn what it means for us, as if we've, we've never heard this word before, as if we've never heard this concept before. We want to know what it means that we are redeemed in Christ and what it means that He is our Redeemer. And so we're just going to start by looking at our verse. We're focusing on verse 7, and the main idea of this verse, the main idea of what I want to communicate to you today is that we are redeemed in Christ, and that has significance both because we are redeemed and it has significance for what we do and how we live today. So verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. The first thing we should notice about this verse is it begins with, with two little words, in Him. We kind of talked about this before. We talked about this a few weeks ago, what, what these words mean, what it means that, that we are in Christ. But I, I don't think we should overlook the significance of these two words, especially as it's connected to the idea of redemption. There are, there are a ton of, of implications for us that we have our redemption in Christ, but I want us to, to think about specifically two of them this morning. The first thing, the fact that we have our redemption in Christ means that there isn't redemption in anyone else. We have our redemption in Christ. We cannot and are not able, and no one is able to have redemption in anything other than Christ. There is salvation in no one else. Scripture makes this perfectly clear. Acts 4.12 says exactly that. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What that means is that people without Christ, people who aren't in Christ, people who don't know Christ, Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, atheists, agnostics, pagans, animists, anyone who does not place their faith, their hope, their trust in Christ for salvation is without Christ. They are not in Him, and because they are not in Him, they do not have redemption. And if we are placing our faith, placing our hope in anything or anyone other than Christ, we do not have redemption either. 
There's salvation in no one else. Nothing else. Of course, that matters for us primarily because that means we need to make sure that our faith is in Christ and not in something else. It also matters for us secondarily because that means that everyone we know who doesn't place their faith in Christ doesn't have redemption. That should concern us. That should, that should break us for them. We should be sad for them. We should be motivated, be incentivized to share the gospel with them because we know this truth. We know that in Him we have redemption and that we do not have redemption in anyone else. And so the question that, that I was forced by this text to ask myself, and the question that you should be forced by this text to ask yourself is, is what are you doing about that? First of all, does it bother you that there are people around you who do not have redemption? Does that bother you? When, when you see people that you know that are apart from Christ, does that affect you? should. If it doesn't, that should affect you. But just being sad, just feeling compassion, or just feeling concern for someone else and their salvation doesn't really do anything for them. We don't actually love that person. We don't actually care for that person. We don't actually have compassion on that person until we step out of our feeling and actually act upon it. And so what we should be thinking about right now is, what did I do last week? What did I do yesterday? What did you do last week? What did you do yesterday to, to bring gospel transformation in someone else's life? And I know that that kind of transformation is only brought about by the Holy Spirit working in their life. But we also know from Scripture that the way that the Holy Spirit works is through God's people. And so, I would just challenge you to think about that. Think about how much you have done to share the redemption that you have in Christ with someone else. Think about what that looked like last week, and then think about what the Spirit would have this week look like if you walked in obedience to Christ. And I would encourage you to do that. Don't just be concerned. Be concerned, but then act on that in obedience to the Spirit. Because we know that there is redemption in no one else. The second implication of this, the fact that we have our redemption in Christ, kind of moves into the next phrase. Paul says that in Him we have redemption. And that word, we have, is, is significant here because... What's going on is Paul shifts here in his language. Up to this point, he's been talking in, in the past tense. He says, He has blessed us. He chose us. He predestined us. These are all things that are in the past. And now, Paul moves to the present tense. We have redemption in Him. What this means is that Paul is talking about this, this idea of something that continues. Right now, we all have redemption in Christ. We have had redemption in Christ since the point of conversion. And what this means for us practically is that both 
the, the beginning, both the origin, both the source of our redemption is in Christ and our redemption right now is still in Christ. That means I can't say, well, I got saved a long time ago and I had redemption in Christ, but now I'm just walking in obedience to the Word and that's why I'm saved. My redemption is still in Him. It was at the beginning, it is now, and it will be forever. He is always the source of our redemption. And we need to understand that. We need to to get that into our minds that our redemption is always in Him and He will always be the basis of our salvation. He will always be the basis of our redemption. That will have implications, I think, for the way we do everything in the Christian life. It has implications for evangelism. Because if, if I get the fact that my redemption is still in Christ today, just like it was the day I was converted. If I get the fact that I need redemption in Christ just as much today as I did the fact the day that I was converted, that's going to change the way I present the gospel to other people. I'm not going to present the gospel to other people as if it's something that I did in the past. As if Jesus is this guy who, who, who once helped me get my act together. And now I'm here to share, share that with you so that you can get your act together like I do. That's, that's not the message of the gospel that Scripture presents. The message of the gospel that Scripture presents is that I need Jesus just as much today as I did then. And that's the Jesus that we need to share with other people. That's the message of redemption that we need to share with other people. That, that we need that redemption just as much today as we did then. And I think that that understanding of the gospel's presentation of redemption will be attractive to people. They're not attracted to people that think they have it all together. They're not attracted to a Jesus who was relevant only in the past. They're attracted to a Savior that we need just as vitally today as we did in the past. This understanding of of redemption will also have implications for discipleship. A lot of times, discipleship looks like this. I'm an older Christian than some of you. And so, we should hang out. I should give you advice. Tell you about all the things that I've figured out in the past. So that you can figure them out now. You should do what I do, say what I say, act like me. Because, you know, I've, I've grown in Christ. But I think if we're honest with ourselves... That's not reality. Sure, we have grown in Christ. Sure, we have been sanctified more than we were the day we got saved. Sure, we do. Older Christians have wisdom they can pass on to younger Christians. But if we are really, as this passage, I think, indicates, just as much in need of Christ today as we were then, then what that means is that we should share with other people both our successes and our failures. Growth comes when people see that we actually do still need Christ. Because that's going to show them that they still need Christ. If we pretend like we've got it all together, if we pretend like we're someone that's worth listening to or worth imitating, what we're doing is we're making disciples of us instead of disciples of Christ. What we need to do is show them that we don't have it all together. We do fail, but there is one who succeeded, and that's who we're following, and that's who they should follow. This also, 
think has implications for worship. A lot of times, we sing the songs that we sing without, I think, recognizing that even our worship needs to be redeemed. We sing songs all the time that have words and phrases which don't always line up with what we actually believe. They don't always line up with what we actually live. Take, for example, two examples from this morning. We sing these lines. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then later, in another song, we sing the line, I am His and He is mine. Two very great, very theologically accurate, very biblical lines. But I know personally, for me, and I would imagine personally for you, those things aren't always true of me. I don't always live, I don't always act like Christ is all of my righteousness. I know He is theologically, I know He is biblically, but sometimes I behave like I have done something to earn God's favor. Sometimes I behave like something I'm going to do today or something I'm going to do tomorrow is going to make me more pleasing to Him. Sometimes I don't live like I'm His. Sometimes I live like I'm mine. And I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter what His Word says. If, if I want to be selfish today, I can be selfish today. I know my wife and my kids really want to spend time with me and God's Word calls me to serve them, but I just want to watch football and then take a nap. Even our praise to God needs redemption. Even when we stand there and we praise Him for how He has redeemed us, we need Him to redeem that. Because in those moments, sometimes we forget that we need that redemption just as much as what we're praising Him for what He's done in the past. He's still doing it in the present. And we need to, to think about that and recognize that when we praise Him. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to, to worship God. I'm not saying that we shouldn't sing songs unless we can, you know, uh, wholeheartedly say, I've meant this in the words of this song all the days of my life. If we did that, it would be extremely quiet in here. I'm not saying that we shouldn't disciple other people. I'm not saying that we shouldn't evangelize. All of these things are commanded to us in Scripture. What I am saying is that we should do these things in such a way that we're living out the reality that, that our redemption is still based on Christ and what He's done. It's still uh, showing other people, showing ourselves, reinforcing it in our minds that we need Christ just as much today as we did then. Our redemption is in Him. We have it in Him in the present, not in the past. That's something we need to get. But now, we need to move on to this next phrase. We have redemption. And here we have to ask the question, because remember, we're, we're a bunch of morons who don't understand what these words mean. What is redemption? What does it mean that we are redeemed in Christ? Um, at its most basic level, redemption is the idea of buying back a slave from captivity. You which is crazy considering how we use the word now. We redeem coupons. 
as if we're freeing that box of cereal from the shackles of Walmart's oppression. It's buying back a slave from captivity, purchasing someone's freedom by paying a ransom. That's what redemption is. And Paul's concept of redemption specifically is rooted in this Old Testament idea, which sounds really goofy to us, of of the kinsman redeemer. You've ever read the book of Ruth or studied the book of Ruth? It probably is talked about there. It's this idea of a kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer is uh, a guy who was a relative of someone else who could redeem that person, save them from a really bad situation. Maybe their relative was in slavery, maybe they were in debt, maybe they were in some other horrible circumstances. And And the kinsman redeemer was someone who was qualified by the law to redeem them from that situation. Oh, what's interesting about how that worked in the Old Testament is that the kinsman redeemer had to be qualified. There wasn't just any relative that could do this for someone else. There were, there were specific stipulations that had to be met in order for the Redeemer to function in that way. And what we see in, the, in Scripture is that Jesus is our Redeemer in this way. He's qualified in this way. There's four qualifications. The first one was that the, the kinsman Redeemer had to be a relative. Is anybody related to None of us are related to Jesus ethnically. But what we see in the New Testament is that this is the reason why Jesus had to be a man. A lot of times we talk about how Jesus was both 100% human and 100% divine, and we don't always understand why it was necessary for him to be both of those things. But the book of Hebrews explains to us that Jesus had to be completely human just as we are so that he could identify with us and redeem us. He, by becoming a human, by taking on flesh, by becoming almost a a new Adam, Jesus walked in, in our lives. He became a human so that he was qualified to redeem us from our sin. The second qualification is that uh, the Redeemer had to be free himself. One slave couldn't redeem another slave. One person in debt couldn't get another person out of debt. The Redeemer had to be free. And this is why Jesus had to be without sin. Jesus had to be without sin so that he was able to redeem us from its slavery. If he had given into sin, if he had given into temptation, he would not have been in a place himself to free us from sin. He also had to be able to pay. He couldn't free someone from debt, free someone from slavery if you couldn't pay the ransom yourself. This is the reason why Jesus had to be God. This is why he had to be divine. Because if we think about it, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more in a few minutes, but what, what was the ransom that he paid? To, to purchase our freedom from sin, to purchase our freedom from slavery to sin, the ransom that he paid was the penalty that we had incurred for our sin. All of us. My sin, your sin, everyone's sin. And if you 
think about what the punishment is for those who, who Christ did not pay for. The punishment is hell. Right? Eternal torment, eternal punishment. I know that that's not an idea that we like to talk about, but it's, it's what Scripture presents. It presents hell as a real physical place where people are, are judged and condemned and punished for their sin. And we, as finite human beings, apart from the grace of God, would have to spend all of eternity paying for our sin. So the idea that I could, or you could, or any other mere human being could, on the cross, bear the penalty for everyone's sins who would be redeemed, is ridiculous. There's no way a human being could do that. There's no way a human being would be capable of paying that penalty that we had incurred from God. And so what we see here is that in order for Jesus to be able to pay that ransom, he had to be God. If he wasn't God, he wouldn't have been able to. The last thing, and this is surprising, the the, the fourth qualification for the kinsman redeemer was that they had to be willing and I'm, I'm guessing that, that you, you got relatives like if we were to think of some of our relatives so maybe you wouldn't want to redeem maybe you wouldn't be willing to get out of debt or get out of slavery maybe they you know eat all of the, the pie at Thanksgiving and, and you, you'd like to have some of it to yourself this year so you're, you're not going to redeem that or other more serious family divisions that happen between people. But Jesus was with. I think this is where we see his, his truly amazing grace and his abounding love and his, his rich mercy that he was willing to redeem. It's one thing to say that he was qualified, to say that he was able, to say that he was in a position to, but then he did it. He came to earth. He lived the perfect life. He was without sin. He was born as a man. He left the glory of heaven. He came here where it's boring in comparison. He met God's requirements. He was innocent. He was blameless. And still he allowed himself to be killed violently as a payment for the penalty that, that we deserve. And that he did not deserve the opposite. He was willing to do that because of the grace and Paul says it well that he lavished upon us. Jesus is qualified to be our redeemer. And as I said before, redemption is buying back slaves. We were enslaved to sin. Paul explains this in Romans. He says we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means for us to be freed from sin. He paid the ransom through his blood. We just talked about that, that him shedding his blood on the cross paid that penalty that we deserve. And this gets us, Paul says, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That word trespasses is probably a little odd to us. It 
that's not one we talk about on a regular basis for more common with, with sins, but what trespasses is specifically talking about is, is breaking some sort of moral standard. If you break this, this standard that I have set up, or think about football, when someone breaks the rules, that's, that's a trespass. They are, they are going against the standard that the league has put in place for how people are to pay, play the game. When we're talking about life, it's of course much more uh, significant that we go against the standard that God has set for how we are to live. That's what we trust that. That's what we break. We, we do what He says not to do, or we don't do what He says to do. And because of that, we lie outside of His standard of perfection. And no one ever, no human being at any time, any place, ever met that standard. The only person that did is who? That's right. The Sunday school answer is correct. Jesus is the only one who met that standard. And through His blood, He paid the penalty for all the, the wrath, all the judgment, all the condemnation, all the punishment, the, the penalty, the ransom that needed to be paid for us and for our sin. And this means that our sins, our trespasses are forgiven. But, it's more than that. It's, it's not just the fact that our sins are forgiven. It is that. And, and we should be happy with just that. But He did this more. He doesn't just free us from the penalty of sin. He also frees us from the power of sin. Remember, he, he, he doesn't just pay the ransom. He gets us out of slavery. What that means is that we are not, we are, as Paul says, no longer enslaved to sin. He says, should have. Far-reaching implications for the way we live. That we are no longer enslaved to sin. Let's talk about two of them. The first one. The fact that we're freed from the penalty of sin should mean that when we do sin, because we know that sin is a reality, when we do sin, we should not give in to, to shame and guilt. What I've seen in my own life and what I imagine you've seen in yours is when we do fall, when we do stumble, when we do give in to sin, our natural tendency is towards guilt and shame. Our natural tendency is to, to hide, to be ashamed, to do really what it ends up is causing us to stay in sin, instead of recognizing that, that godly sorrow over sin should lead to repentance. It should push us into the Word. It should push us into worship. It should push us back into fellowship with the body of Christ instead of causing us to hide in our shame. And so, because we know that in Him we have, currently have, in the present have redemption through His blood, we are free from the penalty of sin. That means when we do sin, there is not any condemnation on us. Paul says that in Romans, as clear as he possibly can. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because there's no condemnation, 
going back to discipleship and evangelism and, and other stuff like we talked about earlier. We should not be afraid to share our feel- failures with others. We should be willing, eager. Not in a look at me and the horrible things I've done, but in a I screwed up. But, but God is gracious, He is merciful, and He paid my penalty so that I don't have to. Another implication of this. The idea that we are no longer enslaved to sin means two things. The first thing is that it means that we can say no to sin. The second thing it means is that we don't have an excuse to make The way God's Word talks about sin talks about what He's done on our behalf, talks about the fact that we are no longer enslaved to it means that we are in a place where we can say no. And I think that this is an idea that we we miss a lot. We have a tendency as Christians to identify ourselves with specific sin. Like, oh, I struggle with anger, or I struggle with lust, or I struggle with worry or I struggle with something else. That's me. That's who I am. That's what I struggle with. And because of that, ironically, instead of helping us to fight those sins more, it helps us to give in to those sins more. Because we think that's who we are. I'm somebody who struggles with anger. That's who I am. I just, just do it. I try to fight and I can't. But God's Word tells us that that's not true. God's Word tells us that we are free from sin. We are free from its penalty. We are free from its power. And because of that, we can say no. My identity is not someone who struggles with some specific sin. My identity is that I am redeemed in Christ. And that's something that we need to get so that when we are faced with those sins, we don't identify with them, we say no to them. Not because we're special, not because we're powerful, not because we have got anything in us that makes it so that we can say no, but because He has done this on our behalf and He has sent us the Spirit so that we can say no. The second thing that it should mean is that when we don't say no, when we do give in to sin, we don't have an excuse. And I think for us as a church, we're especially guilty of this, of excusing sin. And we do that because of, of two solid biblical truths that we get and understand well. The first one is that we get the reality uh, that legalism is not a means of salvation. We understand that we are saved solely on the basis of Christ's work. We're not saved on what Christ has done plus anything that we do or don't do. We're saved simply by what He's done. We get that and we should. That's true within Scripture. The second thing that we understand is that we as human beings are fundamentally flawed. We get the fact that we are imperfect, that we are, are sinful at our core. We are self-centered, we are prideful, we are a whole slew of other things that are not good, naturally. And those things are biblical. But if we're not careful we can distort those truths so that they become excuses for us in our sin. I should do the right thing. 
I'm a wretched deal for human being. And I know that me doing that thing isn't going to earn me salvation, so why does it really matter whether I obey Christ or not? Why does it matter whether I read my Bible on a regular basis? Why does it matter whether I go to church on a regular basis? Why does it matter whether I serve my family and love my wife? Why does it matter whether I choose to do what God calls me to do? Why does it matter whether I share the gospel with other people, even though He's commanded me to do it as plain as day in Scripture? I'm naturally inclined to sin. Clearly, that is a distortion of truth, and we need to recognize that we are not enslaved to sin. Even though apart from Christ, we are fundamentally messed up. Because of what He's done for us, we are no longer enslaved to sin. He's changed us at our core. Our identity in Christ is that we are redeemed. And because of that, we can say no to sin. We should say no to sin. And when we don't, we do not have an excuse. No matter how theologically accurate we think it might be. The rest of what Paul writes in the book of Ephesians is pretty much an unpacking and and further implications of the fact that God has saved us in Christ. I want us to talk about a few specific things that he actually ties to the idea of redemption. The first comes up down in verse verse 10, where he says that Christ, or that God did these things in Christ to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. God redeemed us in Christ so that these things would be united. And there, there's two specific implications of this. The first is that we are united with God. He did this to unite things in heaven and things on earth. And so one aspect of our redemption in Christ is that we are united with God. We can enjoy, because of what Christ has done, a personal, intimate connection with God that doesn't exist in Scripture after Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They lose that right because of their sin. And Christ, because of His work of redemption, buys it back for us. He has saved us to bring us to God. And because of that, we have a connection, we have a relationship with Him that we would not have otherwise. And we shouldn't take advantage of that. We should take advantage of that. We shouldn't just recognize that reality in Scripture that we have this personal opportunity for a relationship with the God of the universe and then just leave it there. We should enjoy that relationship. We should fellowship with God in prayer. We should seek to have Him reveal Himself to us through His Word. We should make use of the unification that God has, that Jesus has brought for us with the Father. The second implication of this is that it unifies us. It doesn't just unify us with God. It does that, our vertical relationship with the Father. But it also unifies us with one another. This means that there is is no excuse for division between us. It doesn't matter what our hobbies are. It doesn't matter the way we dress. It doesn't matter how old we are. It doesn't matter whatever. 
because of what Christ has done for us, because the, the God of the universe, He who is perfect, forgives us who is imperfect. Because of that, we should be willing to put aside any petty differences we would have with one another and celebrate the common bond we have in Christ. He came to bring unity between us and God and between us with one another. And we shouldn't dismiss that or disregard that. The second thing that we see in the book of Ephesians is in 2.9, where Paul talks about the fact that our salvation, our redemption, is not a result of works. It means we can't vote. It means I can't take credit for my redemption. Remember, my redemption is still based in Christ today just like it was forever ago. I am redeemed by Him. I have no reason to boast and neither do any of you. So because of that, we shouldn't. We should humbly live with one another, celebrating the common salvation that we have in Christ, recognizing that, that our successes will probably be outweighed by our failures. And that we should share those just as easily with one another. The second big implication in Ephesians is in 11 through 22, and we're not going to read that, but it, it ties into this idea of unity. He talks about Christ's redemption reconciling Jews and Gentiles, these two people that, that hated each other, that, that did not share common salvation. And this, again, means that it doesn't matter what differences, race, nationality, political party, favorite sports team, it, it doesn't matter what groups of people you have, the salvation we have in Christ should be more important than any of those boundaries. The only thing that should really matter to us about another person is whether or not they know Christ. If they do know Christ, that should encourage us to celebrate the common salvation we have with them, regardless of any differences. And only after we've done that, then maybe we can talk with them about those differences that we have and whether or not they're biblical. If someone doesn't know Christ, our concern for, for their position outside of His redemption should cause us to overlook any differences we might have with them. At that point, we shouldn't say, well, you're not a Christian, but you're not an American, so... The fact that they are apart from Christ should matter more to us than any other thing that they might have. And because of that, we should live with them, spend time with them, build relationships with them so that we can share the message of Christ's salvation with them and, and encourage them to believe the gospel and repent. But the fact that they are different from us is not a reason to overlook them. And the rest of Ephesians in 4, 5, and 6, pretty much the whole thing is just practical application of what God has done for us in Christ. And what's interesting, if you were to read through Ephesians 4 through 6, and I encourage you to do that, that Paul quite often grounds what he commands in what Christ has done. Here's a couple of examples. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Forgive people just as God in Christ forgave you. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
for Paul, redemption wasn't just a thing that he experienced in the past on the road to Damascus. For Paul, redemption was something that he was living out. And so when he tells other people how to live, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't just say, do this, do that. He says, do these things because of what Christ has done for you. Forgive other people just like Christ has forgiven you. Love other people just like Christ has loved you. Redemption is a reality for Paul. And like Paul, the fact that we are redeemed in Christ should affect the way we live. It should make us be different. And I've, we've, we've seen lots of practical implications of that in our passage today, but it doesn't end here. Because tomorrow and the next day and the day after that, there are going to be more implications of, of His redemption in our lives. And so this is the point where, where our work begins. Where we go out from this place and we ask God by the power of His Spirit to make known to us the ways in which we should live out His redemption in our lives. This isn't something we should just dismiss. This isn't something we should just leave here and think, well, verse 7 is great. I'm glad I was redeemed by God. We should think that. But we also need to go out from this place and allow God's Word by the power of God's Spirit to change God's people so that His glory can be made known in the world. That's how people are going to come to Christ. Not by us coming up with clever phrases or learning the best evangelism methods. The way the Gospel is going to change the world is when the Gospel changes us. And through us, His message goes out and is lived out. That's what we want to see as a church and that's what we should pray to see in our city. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Let's pray.
thank you that we are free from the penalty of sin and we are free from the power of sin. God, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, the reality of our redemption in Christ wouldn't just be some theological concept or some abstract thought. God, it would be practical in the way that we live, in the way we treat one another, in the way that we have unity, in the way that we share the gospel, in the way that we disciple others, follow you, in the way that we worship you, in the way that we do everything. That we ask that your spirit would drive down deep within us the realities of our redemption in Christ. Thank you that our redemption is in His name.